0: Let's uh, bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you told us that your word is truth. Lord, there are many things that people can build upon. But Lord, they are all shaky buildings built upon a foundation of sand. But Lord, when we build upon your word... We are building up on the rock. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, as we look at these topics, these subjects this morning, we pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to have open hearts and open ears, to be Bereans, to receive the word with all readiness, but search the scriptures to see if these things are so. The Lord, we would grow together. Lord, I pray for harmony and for unity amongst us. I pray for your peace, a peace that can only come from you. Lord, just to pervade everything that we are, everything that we do. And We just give you this time now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tradition is the enemy of the truth. No question about that. Jesus said that tradition effectively undermines the word of God. Matthew 15 verse 6 is what he said tradition makes the word of no effect you know and because of tradition people miss out on incredible truths and blessings because they assume something to be something because they've heard it because tradition has told them so often they never go and check it out and because of that they actually miss out on some incredible things in god's word and you know tradition blinds people and builds up walls against the truth and the funny thing is that when people are into their tradition, when they've received something that's been passed down to them, they've accepted, they've believed, and that's the way we do it, that's what we believe, the irony is that people vehemently defend their tradition over and above the truth. They kind of put the truth, I don't want to know that because I believe this. And it's based upon tradition, and it's a really dangerous situation that we find ourselves in and of course it's never truer than in regard to the Christmas narrative you know tradition has just laid down a smokescreen over this whole topic and sadly so many people miss out on some of the things that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks so at the outset we've got to be prepared to let go of tradition now in some respects some traditions can be good things But when we elevate tradition over and above the word of God, then we have our problem. And of course, with Christmas and this season, you know, we've all been brought up with traditions. You know, your family would have a tradition, things you do each year. But in regard to what you believe about this time of year, the Bible and what we think the Bible says, again, we've all been brought up with that tradition. And we've all been led to believe things that when we go back to Scripture, we'll find that a number of those things are not true. They're not scriptural. So in our search for these hidden treasures that we're going to be looking at, it's essential that we have that correct starting point. Of course, that is God's Word. So I think we can all agree with that, that we're not interested in our opinion. Our opinions don't matter. What matters is God's Word. It doesn't matter how devoutly held and hold on to a tradition may be, if it's not in accord with God's word, then it's not right. God's word alone and not man's is true. So that's our starting point. Now as we start to look for these hidden treasures, it's true and we understand that the Bible doesn't give us every single detail of everything that took place regarding the birth of Christ. And we're not given the exact date in the Bible it doesn't say in, you know, Matthew's gospel that Jesus was born on this date and he gives us it. It doesn't do that. You know, and there are certain details that indeed are omitted from the text, as in many things in scripture. The, the Lord doesn't give us every detail about everything, single thing, but he gives us what's important, what we need to know. But interestingly, as we will discover, the Bible actually gives us far more about the first Christmas than most Christians realize, and certainly far more than the world has ever understood. And we should always be mindful of what Solomon said in Proverbs 25, verse 2, that the glory of God is to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. God clearly does conceal certain things in his word. And we've seen it many times. That only through diligent study will you stumble across these things. The Holy Spirit will reveal things to you. And it's not something that is unique to any one person. You know, Scripture is not of private interpretation. You won't see something that only you have seen. You know, It's been said before, if it's true, it's probably not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. So you're not going to come up with something that nobody else has ever seen. Or you might, but then you find out that somebody else has also discovered the same thing. So you you may be new to you, but see, the Lord does reveal things that on the surface are not obvious. Okay, so let's start to to think about this whole topic of Christmas. The story of Christmas doesn't begin 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. Now that, for, for most people, is their starting point. They think of Christmas, they think that's where it all begins. We go back to Bethlehem, that just some 2,000 years ago. But the origin of Christmas can be traced back to before the foundation of the world. And as you, as you and I as Christians, we should make this really clear. If we're talking to people, we get the opportunity that for 4,000 years, God had been preparing for the first Christmas right from the time of creation. God had been preparing and planning and getting everything just right. You see, from the moment of the fall, God's plan was put into place. In fact, of course, the plan existed even before that, but the fall was that necessary step that man had to take in order to be in this predicament that we find ourselves in so that God then could bring about his plan to redeem and rescue mankind so that we can have eternity with him one day. God knew what was going to happen in the Garden of Eden. That didn't come as a surprise. And that's why we're told that Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. But in that statement, God is declaring that he was planning Christmas way back before even the foundation of the earth was laid. It wasn't an afterthought. I would go as far as to say that it was the centerpiece of, of god's divine plan now you might object to say well hang on isn't the cross the centerpiece of all history and i would say yes it is absolutely categorically yes but you see this is tradition's first disservice it's managed to dissociate christmas from calvary you know the reason jesus came at christmas was to go to calvary without calvary there would be no christmas You can't separate the two. So these two events are the centerpiece of history. And they're the centerpiece of God's plan. This is what everything in the Old Testament was looking forward to, and it's what everything since is looking back to. Now, amongst some of the traditional errors, the timing of Christmas of course is wrong that we typically celebrate it wasn't December the 25th I think most people are aware of that but we'll talk about it in a while but also the traditional setting is wrong and the traditional attendees are confused you can go to any garden centre or shop that's selling Christmas uh, manger scenes and so on and you'll find people there that weren't on the list my mum has this habit of going to garden centres in around Christmas time and she'll find the major or the kings and she'll typically move them and she'll go and put them somewhere else in the garden centre. She's got in trouble for this a number of times. But it just annoys her that people just kind of put their own take on what the Bible says and try and interpret it according to their tradition. But because of these things, the reason for Bethlehem is obscured. We'll talk about this in a while, but why Bethlehem? Of all the cities... All the towns in Israel at that time, why Bethlehem? And someone might say, oh, because it was the town of the city of David. is where David was born. Yeah, it was. But why? What was the significance? The reason, the role for the shepherds is also obscured. And we'll talk about this briefly later. But people will say, well, it's because the shepherds were considered kind of the outcasts and God comes to the weak and, you know, to the lowly and so on. I'm not even sure that's true from Scripture. We'll look at that in a while as well. Why shepherds? Why were the shepherds the first ones that God announced this incredible gift that he was giving to the world? Why were the shepherds the first ones that got that announcement from the angels? And the reason for the visit of the Magi is also obscured. So we've grown up with this tradition that there were three kings. We were even given their names. That partly goes back to uh, a a dig that was done in Mesopotamia, and they found three skulls. (laughs) Who else could they be? And so they were given names, and they're actually uh, on uh, display in a um, cathedral in Germany, Uh, or at least the the tomb in which these uh, are, ornate gold-plated tomb in which these skulls now reside. Uh, And of course, that's apparently these three kings. Nowhere does the Bible say three. No, it's not kings. So we'll look at that. But also the location of the Magi's visit is in error, as is the notion of a star over a stable. And they all lead to wrong assumptions. And the real problem is that because tradition has managed to work its way so incredibly into this narrative, these wrong assumptions have even found their way into modern Bibles. I was horrified a few years ago. I was reading through with Amita in her Bible. Which was a New Living translation at the time. And I was shocked to find that the translators had put something in the text that was not in the text, and thus they made a glaring error. It was glaring to me. But the problem is, many will read that and they'll think, well, the Bible says this and so forth. It's true. No. You've got to be so, so careful. So because of tradition, it's even twisting now the word of God in some cases. Well, let's just talk a little bit about the timing of the first Christmas then. As I said, the announcement had been made some 6,000 years ago from where we are now. Genesis 3, verse 15, we'll look at it in a second. A specific family had also then been chosen in Genesis 12, the family of Abraham. The Passover had also been instituted in Exodus twelve, after they had gone through that trouble in Egypt as Moses is about to lead them out the night they're about to go out, they're told to celebrate this Passover, and the blood of this lamb is to put upon be put on the lintels and doorposts of the house, and the angel of death passed over the land, as you know the account. But then the law also had to be given. These were all prerequisites. You may not necessarily join the dots, but as you start to think, you realize all of these were prerequisites for what had to happen and what had to come. The law had to be given. And of course, Exodus, Leviticus, in fact, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just carry on this law that God gave at Sinai to his people. But then also the monarchy also had to be established. And the town chosen. We call snow because Micah tells us it was Bethlehem. But Micah also tells us exact location, and we'll see that in a while as well. So let's just go through some of the scriptures. Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And Satan, of course, did bruise Jesus' heel, the seed of the woman in the crucifixion. But this is a, a promise that the Savior was going to come and was going to effectively crush the head of the serpent. But notice that the promise here is of the seed of the woman. Well, biologically, we know that the seed is from the man. This, even back in Genesis 3.15, is a divine promise of the Savior born of a virgin. Genesis chapter 12, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. How so? Well, because through this family line, the line of Abraham, God planned to bring the Messiah into the world. And so that all the families of the world could have the opportunity of a relationship with God. So that blessing extends to the whole world, to the whosoever. Again, all part of the Christmas narrative, really. And of course, then we get to Passover, And we read, speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of your fathers, a lamb for a house. And it goes on in verse 5, it says, your lamb shall be, notice what it says, without blemish, a male of the first year. How would you tell if a lamb was without blemish? Connie was uh, just working behind me as I was doing some study yesterday. And um I just... Turned around and asked the question. I said, Connie, if you were looking at a lamb and you wanted to find out if it was absolutely perfect there was nothing wrong with it, I said, how would you find out? And She said, well, you'd look at it. I said, yeah, quite simple, really. I said, who would be the best person to look at it? And she went, well, uh, she's probably a vet. I said, yeah. I said, or, or maybe, she said, shepherd? I said, yeah, shepherd. A great person to, to examine a lamb and to find out whether it was without blemish. You see how important these things are, these details. And then the monarchy is established, of course. Saul was never the king that God wanted for the nation. It was in response to Israel crying out to be like the nations around them. So God allowed them to have it their way for a while. And, of course, it didn't turn out so good. But then eventually, because Saul, of course, was not from the tribe of Judah, where the kings were going to come from. But then, of course, David, God's man, the man after God's own heart, is established as the king of Israel. And then his lineage goes all the way down, ultimately, to Jesus. And, of course, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, we have two genealogies, one coming down from uh, Bethsheba, the wife of David after the Uriah incident, It comes down through the second surviving son of Bathsheba. And then the other line comes down through Nathan, not the prophet Nathan, but David's son Nathan, all the way down. So we have Matthew and Luke's account. Different genealogies, both going back to David. And there's a reason for those things. We may touch on that next week. But we read, And when thy days is the Lord speaking to David, be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, Initially, that's, of course, a promise of Solomon getting onto the throne, which happened, but this is way beyond just that, because he says, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's not talking about Solomon. Solomon's throne, Solomon's kingdom wasn't established forever, but there is a descendant of David who is destined to sit upon the throne and reign forever. Of course, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we get to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. And God speaking to Ahab, one of the wicked kings of the northern kingdom. And the Lord says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Which, of course, as we know, means God with us. God coming down to us. But honey shall he, that he may know how to refuse evil and choose the good. But notice verse 16. But be, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, other before he comes, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So this is a, a clue as to the time frame. We're told that it's going to happen after the dividing and then the final... Destruction of the northern and the southern kingdoms. The Assyrian captivity, 722 BC, and then the Babylonian captivity that followed for the southern kingdom. So after that has happened, and this is an interesting point and quite important because Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar comes and the Babylonian king, he besieges Jerusalem, and in 587, the crown was carried away to Babylon, where that seed of power then remained. Nebuchadnezzar and his son subsequently But a young man was also taken away at that point. In fact, actually slightly earlier, Daniel was taken away in 606 BC. But Daniel was taken to Babylon, and the right to appoint kings subsequently became the remit of a Medo-Persian priestly sect known as the Magi. Now, what's really incredible as you read through Daniel is that you find that Daniel is appointed as chief of the Magi. I mean, that was unheard of because it was a hereditary sect of these Medo Persians. And David is appointed, so Daniel is appointed as the head of this group. And Daniel reveals to them the prophecies about the coming Magi. Just think for a second what we've just seen there. that the crown was taken from Israel with the last king to Babylon. And as we'll look in more detail next week, it was about 500 or so years later that the Magi bring the crown back. And they say, where is he that has been born King of the Jews? It's incredible, the links you start to see. Another important part of this jigsaw, this puzzle, was that the law had to be given. And Galatians 4, the whole book of Galatians is incredible in regard to this. But it says, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, but when the fullness of the time was come, in other words, when God had got everything prepared. You know what Christmas is like. You like to get everything prepared beforehand, yeah? It's kind of really important that we make sure we've got everything done so that when we get to the day, it's just right. God was no different. God wanted everything perfect. Everything had to be in place where the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Significant point. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, the law had to be given to show us that we were sinful, to show us that we needed a Savior. As Paul also says, the Lord was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And then, of course, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, verse, we hear so much this time of year, but thou, Bethlehem of though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We know the scripture. But the question again is, why Bethlehem? Yes, God chooses Bethlehem and states that out of the thousands in Judah, God is choosing this one, but why? It's just a, a random choice. Let me give you a quick summary. Abraham was chosen, he was a man of faith, willing to offer his own son as a sacrificial offering. We know that. That's why God declared him to be a, a man of faith. And God in that exchange, Genesis 22 says, God will provide himself A lamb. The question Abraham asks is, or Isaac asks uh, Abraham, he says, well, we've got the word and and everything else, but where is the lamb? And Abraham responds and says to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. Not will provide a lamb for himself. God will provide himself a lamb. Of course, this then ties beautifully in with the whole Christmas narrative. Again, the Passover was instituted as a model in advance. It required the shed blood of a lamb. The law was instituted with the sacrificial system. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The monarchy was necessary. and Of course, David was a shepherd and a man after God's own heart. But again, that question, come back to it, why Bethlehem? Or was it just a random choice? Why not Jerusalem? We're going to come back to that in a second. But I want to take you through five markers that allow us to pinpoint the date of the first Christmas. Yes, the Bible does give us that information. Firstly, we know that the flocks were in the open field because Luke 2 verse 8 tells us that. So we know it wasn't after October because after October, the typically the flocks would be brought in where it would be warmer and they'd be kept off the fields because it was too cold for them and they might die. And of course, no competent Roman administrator would require registration, which would, of course, involve travel during that season when Judah would become quite impassable at times. In Matthew twenty four twenty, Jesus himself alludes to the way that the roads would get, that travel's not good when it's in winter. Reverend Alexander Hislop says this, No doubt the climate of Palestine is not so severe as the climate of this country, but even there, though the heat of the day be considerable, the cold of the night from December to February is very piercing. And it was not the custom for the shepherds of Judah to watch their flocks in the open fields later than about the end of October. Joseph Mead makes this comment, he says, At the birth of Christ, every woman and child was to go to be taxed at the city whereto they belonged, where the some had long journeys. But the middle of winter was not the fitting for such a business, especially for women with child, with, with women with child and with children to travel in. Therefore, Christ could not be born in the depth of winter. So there's kind of... You, general agreement amongst the commentators and uh, Hislop again says it is in the last degree incredible then that the birth of Christ could have taken place at the end of December there is great unanimity among commentators on this point Okay, so straight away everybody who looked at this kind of comes to the same conclusion but we've got more than just that just looking at some church history to start with Tertullian who was born about 160 AD uh, it's about roughly kind of uh, between 80 years or so after the time of the disciples. It stated that Augustus, the Roman emperor, began to rule 41 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, we know that Augustus began to reign in the autumn of 43 BC. So that would place the birth of Jesus in the year 2 BC. So to make it simple, we know when Augustus began to reign. We know that the birth of Christ occurred at a particular event. We know that from what Tertullian tells us, there was 41 years between those two. We know when it started. He started the reign in 43 BC. So we simply do the maths and we find that 2 BC would be the year according to that reckoning. But there's more because Tertullian also stated that Augustus died 15 years after the birth of Christ. Now we know that Augustus died on the 19th of August, 14 AD. And that also places the year of the birth of Jesus as 2 BC. There is no year zero. You went from 1 BC to 1 AD. There is no year zero, okay? So we do the same thing again. So we know that the death of Augustus was 15 years, according to what Tertullian says. Um, that the birth of Christ was after the death of Augustus. So we know that the death of Augustus was in 14 AD. So you do the math, you work back. Again, no year zero, 2 BC. But again, so he have got two markers that pinpoint 2 BC as our date, or our year, Uh, Tertullian also notes that Jesus was born 20 years after the death of Cleopatra. I'm sure some of you remember the name from history. Uh, Cleopatra died in 30 BC. Well, that again constitutes, uh, was consistent with a year of 2 BC, uh, dates of 2 BC. Exactly the same thing again. Fourth one Eusebius, another of the early church fathers, lived a little bit later, about uh, 260 to 340 AD. He was the father of church history, is how he's described. He ascribes the birth of Jesus to the 42nd year of the reign of Augustus and the 28th from the subjection of Egypt on the death of Antony and Cleopatra. So he's using two markers to pinpoint this particular year. Now again, the 42nd year of Augustus would have run from the autumn of 2 BC to the autumn of 1 BC. That's one of our kind of start date points. The other one is the subjugation of Egypt into the Roman Empire after Antony and Cleopatra. And that occurred in the autumn of 30 BC. So the 28th year from the autumn of 3 BC to the autumn of 2 BC. So the only day that would meet both of those constraints would be the autumn of 2 BC. So we've now got a really tight frame uh, of when this could have, the birth of Christ could have occurred. It had to be 2 BC. Too many of the historians and the reckonings place it at that point. And we now know as well for a number of reasons, again from the shepherds would indicate, but also this gives us the autumn as the only real possibility. But we've got more from Scripture. Now, Elizabeth was John's mother, John the Baptist's mother, and was a cousin of Mary, of course, uh, and the wife of this priest named Zacharias. Now, Zacharias, we're told, was of the course of Abijah. David divided the priests, all the priests that were serving in David's time, into 24 groups, 24 courses of priests. Okay, And they would all serve for one week from Sabbath to Sabbath, and they would go off duty, and then another one of the courses would come in. So they'd roughly get about two weeks a year, as you work out through the year, where they would be serving in the temple. The course of Abijah, because we know in 1 Chronicles 24 verse 10, was the eighth course. So they all had their order, they all had their time and their term in taking uh, responsibility to do the roles in the temple. Now, we do know from history that the temple was destroyed by Titus on the 5th of August, 70 AD. And when that Occurred because it's recorded both in the um, Jewish Talmud and Josephus, the historian also records it, that the first course of priests had just taken office. Well, all you need to do is to sit down with a piece of paper and track back week by week which course was on duty, and then you can find out that Zechariah sort of ended his duties on the 13th of July, 3 BC. Okay, that's just a simple bit of history, just working backwards, because we've got a fixed point with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And we know which course was on duty, so we simply work backwards. Now, presuming, and this is an assumption, I'll be honest with you, but it's a pretty good assumption, because Zechariah had been away from his wife for a week. Um, he gets home that evening. He's had this promise that she's gonna have a baby. He can't speak. So, I'll let you fill in the blanks. If the birth of John the Baptist then took place 280 days later, that would have occurred on the 19th or 20th of April in 2 BC, which seems very likely, very probable. It just so happened to be Passover that year on that date. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, if John was born on the 19th or 20th in 2 BC, his 30th birthday would have been April 1920, I and mean 29 AD, in the 15th year of Tiberius. And again, that's exactly what Scripture alludes to. The minimum age for ministry was 30 years old, and John began his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius. So all of those from Scripture, the dates and the information we have, all dovetail and they fit perfectly together. Now Augustus died on the 19th uh, of August, 14 AD, and that was the ascension year for Tiberius. And again, that seems to confirm 2 BC as the date. Uh, and since John was five months older than this, also suggests, again, another one of these pointers, suggests the autumn birth date for Jesus. But is it interesting that John repeatedly introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God? And if John was born on the Passover, Every birthday would be reminded of those lambs that were sacrificed. And then he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, Elizabeth, we know, hid herself for five months, and then the angel Gabriel announced to Mary um, both Elizabeth's condition and that Mary also was going to bear a son who would be called Jesus. So Mary then, with haste, goes to visit Elizabeth, who was then in the first week of her sixth month of her pregnancy which would have been the fourth week of December 3 BC. Now, if Jesus was born 280 days later, from the announcement of Gabriel, which we can presume that would have been certainly there or thereabouts, it would actually place the date of his birth on the 29th of September 2 BC, which fits in with every other measure and thing we've just looked at. So the 29th of September 2 BC seems to be, and a lot of commentators are in agreement on this, the most likely date for the birth of Jesus. But there's something that I think helps to fix this even more so. And that is that in that particular year, the 29th of September 2 BC just so happened to be the Feast of Trumpets. It means that John would have been born on the Feast of Passover, Jesus born on the Feast of Trumpets. Now, trumpets were blown to announce war or to proclaim joy. Well, certainly it was a proclamation of joy. To those that follow Jesus, it's a declaration of war to those that reject Him. The feast of trumpets required an offering made by fire to the Lord, and that's exactly what Jesus would become—an offering in our place. Zechariah is interesting; he specifically links the trumpet or the ram's horn, the chauffeur, to the birth of Christ. It's in Luke one sixty-nine in his declaration when he gets his voice back again specifically links trumpets to the birth of Christ. And of course, the other thing I think is interesting is that the trumpet is definitely linked with the giving of the word of God at Mount Sinai. You Just read through Exodus 19, you'll see it. And of course, with the Jubilee, the trumpet was used to proclaim liberty. What a better day for the Messiah to be born on on the Feast of Trumpets. Now, just to point out, there were some rules regarding feast days in Israel. Specifically, if it were a feast day, people would be required to be kept ceremonially clean so that they could celebrate the feast. If a person was defiled, they could not celebrate. Now, just to underscore how important it was, because for us, we may think, oh, it doesn't really matter. But for the Jews, it really was a big deal. So much so, if you remember, on the morning of the resurrection, it was during that feast time. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then on the first uh, the Sunday would be the Feast of First Fruits. It was a feast day. As Peter and John run to the tomb, John gets there, but because it's a tomb, he won't enter it because it would make him defiled. Peter, by that point, has lost everything. He denied Jesus three times. He's got nothing to lose. He just walks straight in, doesn't care anymore. But John, still at that point, concerned about being defiled. It really did matter to the Jews. It was a big thing. you know. And even if your parent died, you weren't allowed to touch the body, or you also would become defiled. Really strict rules and laws. You've only got to read through Leviticus and you'll find these things. Now, similar laws also apply to women with an issue of blood. Of course, each month that would apply, but it also would apply during childbirth. Anyone who touched a woman at that time would also be defiled. This is really significant. And this is something that so many people seem to have missed because it means that anybody who so much as touched Mary or even let her into their house would be at risk of being defiled. Now, this is really important because we're told in Luke chapter two, verse seven, that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's what we're told. Well, the word for room is this Greek word, topos. It's used 80 times and translated place. Five times it's translated room. Literally what it's saying, there was no place found for them. Or another way we can interpret that would be, they were not welcome. Why were they not welcome? Because anybody that came near Mary who was about to give birth, and clearly they could see from the situation, would have been defiled for the feast. And just think about this for a second, because there's a lot of (laughs) unjoined up thinking that goes on. Joseph and Mary both lived in Nazareth. They had a home in Nazareth with their families, respectively. They also had family in Bethlehem. How do we know that? Because that's why they were going back there. The census required them to go back to the place of their birth, to register. And we know they'd have had family there, because under the rules that the the law gives for land ownership, that land of the family could not be sold. And even if it was sold for a time, in the year of the Jubilee, it would return back to the family. So we know that the family would have had connections, people there. If you were traveling back to a place you'd not been to for a while... And you had a, for Josie, if thinking about it, a wife who was heavily pregnant, where would you go? You wouldn't go knocking on strangers' doors. You'd go to your family. And when they get there, they knock on the door. And no place was found for them. Why? Because anybody that had allowed them into the home would have become ceremonially unclean. Now, the words that we have translated. For inn is actually a katalima. Uh, it means guest chamber. It actually is exactly how it's translated in Mark 14a to Luke twenty two eleven. It does not have the connotations of a hotel or an inn in the sense that we would think of it. It is an annex on the side of a house. That's the, the way it's used. It is literally a guest chamber. There is no suggestion whatsoever in this Greek word that it was a stable. So if there was no inn, there was no innkeeper. Now I'm really sorry if when you were at school, you got the part in the Christmas play when you were the innkeeper, because I know everybody loves that particular role. But I'm sorry, that's tradition, that's not scripture. And again, if there was no inn, there was no innkeeper, and it follows that there was also no stable and no cattle shed, there was no oxen lowing. So where was Jesus born? Well, let's now return to that question of why Bethlehem. Well, again, we said earlier, Abraham was chosen, the Passover had to be set up, the law given, the monarchy established, all of these things. Why Bethlehem? Was it random? No, it wasn't random at all. What did everything in this list have in common? Everything was about a sacrificial offering. From the calling of Abraham, the Passover, the law, even the calling of David... Everything had to do with sacrificial offerings. Let's just read from Luke's Gospel. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. We shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord, and there shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, let us go now even unto Bethlehem, and see the thing which is come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They're the first evangelists, by the way, as well. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What things? The visit of the shepherds. Why did these shepherds come and visit her? And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. Who were these shepherds? Do we know anything about them? Well, again, as I said earlier, tradition suggests that because they were considered the outcasts of society, you know, that's why it was, they were chosen and that's why the angels appeared to them and so on. Yeah. And of course, we are told in scripture that God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and so on. That's just true. But I don't think that's a good enough reason because scripture, I think, gives us enough. The Mishnah, by the way, advised against a number of professions, including that of a shepherd. It lists it. Uh, a herdsman as one of those things. But the Bible describes the God of Israel as a shepherd. Psalm 23 for a start. And some of Israel's greatest national heroes, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, were all shepherds. So I don't think it's anything to do with their rank or position in society. You see, God has also promised that he will someday shepherd Israel. And the work of Israel's future Messiah is that of a shepherd. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So who were the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? And why did God choose to send his angels to them? What significance did they have? And what does the Bible really say? Well, again, remember, tradition makes the word of no effect. Alfred Endersheim who was a 19th century Jewish scholar and uh, became a Christian. He highlighted that the flocks kept around Bethlehem were destined for temple sacrifice. Now that's something that has been completely obfuscated by tradition. He said again, that the flocks around Bethlehem in the hills around Bethlehem had one purpose, and that was to be offered in the temple for sacrifice. And the shepherds keeping watch over these sheep knew very well the intended purpose of the lambs that were under their care. And their job was to guard their sheep from becoming injured or blemished because as we've already seen, any injured or blemished lamb could not be offered. One Hebrew commentator said this, the shepherds of these lambs were the elite shepherds from all the priestly tribe of Levi oh, sorry, all from the priestly tribe of Levi whose job it was to care for these lambs so they would remain without spot or blemish. Now that's something i not picked up before but according to this commentator they were all Levites and so it was to those watching over animals destined for the temple sacrifice that the angels announced Jesus' birth the arrival of the ultimate lamb of God was revealed to those who's who's responsible for watching over sacrificial lambs that had always pointed toward Jesus in the first place. And Bethlehem was chosen as the place of Christ's birth precisely for this reason. Not for any other reason than the fact that this is where the sacrificial lambs were born. In the Jewish Mishnah, we read this, the lambs... That were raised in this particular place were particularly special in that they were from a unique flock that was made up of sheep that were designated to be sacrificed in Jerusalem, and in particular, the sacrificial lambs for the Passover sacrifices. Now, the men who kept them were specifically trained for the task and were educated in what an animal to be sacrificed had to be like. You remember what we said earlier on: how would you tell whether an animal was out of blemish? You'd have to inspect it. Who would inspect it? These shepherds. These shepherds' job was to be careful to look after and to inspect these lambs and to confirm that these lambs were eligible to be offered as sacrificial lambs. The job was to make sure that none of the animals were hurt or damaged because they had to be without blemish, according to the Torah. And for that reason, these lambs, when they were born, were wrapped in swaddling bands to protect them from injury, stop them thrashing around. So, being themselves under rabbinical care, these shepherds would maintain a ceremonially clean, stable, and it's not the right word, but it's the word that we're all familiar with, for a birthing place. Now, according to the Talmud, again, all the sheep found in this area from Jerusalem as far as Migdal-Eda, which is Bethlehem, on both sides were deemed to be holy and consecrated. They could only be used for sacrifices in the temple. That's the exclusive use of these sheep, and in particular for the peace offerings and Passover sacrifices. Harold Smith says this, Luke's original audience would have immediately picked up on the religious significance of the Bethlehem shepherds watching their flocks by night. Aware of the Tanakh, that's the Old Testament, and the Jewish temple worship of the day, they would have known that when you said Bethlehem, you said sacrificial lambs. The hills around Bethlehem were home to thousands of lambs used in the ritual worship in the temple. He goes on and says, As a boy from Bethlehem, King David likely had attended sheep destined for daily offerings or used in the sacrifices on the high holidays in these very hills. Every day, according to the Torah, two lambs were required for a daily sacrifice in the temple, meaning that 730 were needed each year plus the tens of thousands more lambs needed for Passover. As well as for the other religious rituals. Everyone in Israel recognized Bethlehem as being synonymous with sacrificial lambs. No wonder Mary kept all these things in her heart. I mean, Mary wasn't ignorant of the law of to the Torah. And as these shepherds, whose job it is to come and inspect sacrificial lambs, arrive and look at Jesus, she must have wondered. Why have they come to look at my baby? For first century Christians, hearing that Yeshua was born in Bethlehem would have automatically triggered an image of the Lamb of Yahweh, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And with that in mind, it's easy for us to imagine one of Luke's listeners saying, of course the Lamb of God would originate in Bethlehem. All the lambs of sacrifice came from there. So it makes sense when you start to think about it. Now, of course, that prophecy we're familiar with from Micah 5, verse 2, tells us that Bethlehem, if rather, is to be the place. But do you know what else Micah prophesied? Well, let's just back up a second. You see, upon arriving at Bethlehem, as we've already commented, there was no place found for Mary and Joseph. They weren't welcome. And I believe exclusively because it was a feast day or approaching a feast day and nobody wanted to be defiled. So Jesus was therefore born in a manger. Now, tradition, of course, told us that this innkeeper who didn't exist directed them to the stable, which didn't exist, The shepherds were in the fields around Bethlehem, and the angels appeared to them to announce Jesus' birth, the Messiah's birth. And the angels gave the shepherds a sign, a way of finding, but they didn't give directions. And this is so significant. We read, And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe. This is, this is all the shepherds had to go on, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, to be precise here, the Greek text actually indicates they would find a babe lying in the manger. So in the Greek, it's a definite article. You can look online, you can check these things. It was the manger, not a manger, not any old place. It was the manger, a specific place. And this is what the shepherds are told. And thus, a babe lying in the manger, wrapped in swaddling bands. Those are the signs. And that would confirm what the angel had said. Now those details were obviously significant to these shepherds because they didn't spend the entire night wandering around Bethlehem knocking on doors. They knew exactly where to go. If you remember, they were fearful and afraid and no doubt a little bit amused at this angelic appearance. But then we find in verse 20 of Luke 2 that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen as it was told unto them. Something dramatically changed their mindset. Now, why would just seeing a baby in a stable next to an inn cause such overwhelming joy? Well, because they didn't go to a stable next to an inn. Where did Mary and Joseph stay that night then? Well, this is where we return to Micah's prophecy. And in chapter 4, we read this, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee, Shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, another expression for Bethlehem, because Bethlehem was just outside Jerusalem. All right, let me read that again, and thou, tower of the flock. Now that expression, Tower of the flock," in the Hebrew is Migdal- Eda. It refers to a particular tower that was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. And the name means Watchtower of the Flock. Now, there were a number of those towers that have been recorded in Scripture, and a number have been found and excavated. Interestingly enough, this very tower was actually found a couple of years ago now, and they started excavating around it. There's a couple of some scriptural references there to where else you find allusions to these towers. It wasn't the only one. There were a number of them. Towers where the shepherds could typically look over and watch over their flock. Rabbi Short makes a statement, he says, This Migdal Eda was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that it on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. Migdal Eda is also mentioned in the Jewish Targums and is translated, the anointed one of the flock of Israel. It's also mentioned back in Genesis 35, it's where... When Rachel dies, um, Jacob sets up a pillow uh, there to mark her grave. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Eda. That's typically what the towers would have looked like, something like that. Now, the interesting thing is, they would have come down from Jerusalem. This is the direction that Mary and Joseph would have been traveling. This is where the tower is. And it's just outside where the modern-day town is. Back in the day, the town would have stretched out a little bit further, apparently, according to a number of commentators. But either way, literally a few hundred yards from the border of the actual town itself, even by the day's reckoning, is where this tower is. Mary and Joseph would have come down this route, and they'd have passed right by the side of this place, entering into the town where the place was found for them. Now, if you were Joseph and you were desperate to get your wife somewhere where she could have a baby I remember well when Amita was born and uh, we had to get to the hospital Mar- Marla was uh, born by a C-section so it was a bit well planned but with Amita it was the first one that we had where there was that kind of like pressure uh, and Joy's waters broke kind of early in the morning uh, it was about 5.30 if I recall and uh, Joy said I think my waters have just broken and so within probably about three and a half minutes I'm at the front door keys in my hand bags ready and like Joy, what are you doing? She said, I'm going to have a shower. It's like, why? why? But she obviously wanted to look her best. You know, it's important, isn't it? Um, yeah, but we, we got to the hospital, but I made haste to get there. I really did. And I wasn't too concerned about whether, you know, there was any legal implications. I just wanted to get her there. What well, for Jacob? i oh, sorry, for Joseph. You know, he would have wanted to get Mary somewhere dry and secure. And if he'd gone into the town and nobody was going to welcome the man, I mean, it's obvious. They've literally just passed right by this place. Let's read on. It was a watchtower, but it was said to be used by shepherds for protection from robbers and wild animals. And given the significance of the sheep around Bethlehem, again, destined for temple sacrifice, it was an important lookout to guard against trouble, but it served a dual purpose. During lambing season, the sheep were brought to the tower from the fields as the lower level functioned as the birthing room for these sacrificial lambs. Being themselves under special rabbinical care, these shepherds would strictly maintain a ceremonially clean birthing place. So it would be hygienic, not some horrible old barn. Once birthed, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in a hewn depression of the limestone rock known as the manger. The rock had this kind of cut out in the bottom of it. That's where they placed their lambs. It was known as The manger and they would wrap the newborn lambs in swaddling clothes, preventing them from thrashing about and harming themselves until they'd calm down so they could be inspected for the quality of being without spot or blemish. Now approaching this subject from the Hebrew perspective will show that while swaddling clothes or cloths were used in the handling of newborn babies, swaddling bands as referred to in Job 38, verse 9, were used for subduing animals prior to sacrifice. These swaddling bands were strips of gauze-like cloth used to restrain a lamb, being prepared for inspection before sacrifice to prevent thrashing that they not blemish themselves. Do you know also, something I only found out, I think it was last year, that these swaddling bands were actually made of old priestly Garments. That's where they came from. That's what they were. They were the old priestly garments when they passed their best, they were literally ripped up and made into these swaddling bands. If this is true, and I think you can see that I think it is, it means that the very first clothes Jesus was wearing were priestly robes. The sacrifice had to be bound in order to be valid. Binding an animal for sacrifice in the Hebrew, okay, that's like the Genesis 22 situation, specifically mentioned in Abraham's binding of Yitzhak Isaac for sacrifice to the Almighty in Genesis 22, verse 9. Again, this is Alfred, ill shame, um, from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. Again, the swaddling band is made from priestly robes. So there was no need for the angels to give the shepherds directions to the birthplace because they already knew it. All they needed to have to go on was that you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling bands, that meant it was their profession, they understood that, laying in the manger. Straight away they knew where to go. These were the men who raised sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple that were birthed, laid in a manger and wrapped in swaddling bands at Migdal Eda. When the angelic announcement came, they knew exactly where to go. They'd also no doubt be aware of the prophecy from Micah that the Messiah would make his appearance to Israel at their very tower. That's what Micah said. The first dominion, this is where it's going to happen. And it was the belief of a number of the Jewish scribes and so on through history that that is where the Messiah would first come to. As Luke 2 indicates, the sign of the manger could only mean the manger at the base of the tower of the flock, as it is found in the original Greek wording of Luke 2, verse 7, 12, and 16. You cannot explain the meaning or directions of sight they were given or their response unless you have the right manger, the right shepherds, and the proper Hebraic perspective. When there was no room for them in the guest chamber, no place found, Joseph had to find a shelter and a place for Mary to give birth. And again, on their route into Bethlehem, they passed right by this tower of the flock. And it seems to be to there that Joseph takes Mary. And it was in this special place, Migdal Eder, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah that Jesus was born. Prophetically, Migdalida, again the Tower of the Flock, is the exact place in Bethlehem for Christ to be born. God was faithful in assuring Israel that he would fulfill his promise to them of the kingdom. That was what the prophecy in Micah was all about. It was about the the Jewish Babylonian captivity and God makes his promise that he would indeed come and rule and reign prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, which is an early Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, that of all the places in Israel, it would be to the Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock in Bethlehem, where the arrival of the Messiah would be declared first. That's what they believed. Again. Tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. Warren Wisby makes this comment. He says, as the pregnant woman must deliver the child, so Judah must be taken captive to Babylon. This is the context of that quote from Micah. It would be the time of pain, but would eventually bring blessing. God promised to deliver them and restore them, and Micah uses the prophecy of the Babylonian captivity of Judah as a pledge to guarantee the birth of Christ, the Messiah, at Migdal Eder at Bethlehem, which is exactly where it took place. Micah prophesied that as surely as the Babylonians would soon carry away Judah in the north, so the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. And here Micah pledges that as surely as Babylon would carry away Israel into captivity, so the Messiah would arrive at the Tower of the Flock. And of course Micah goes on with the prophecy in chapter 5. And tells us, of course, it's going to be Bethlehem. Brody and Brooke, uh, thrown in their wire manger, said this, Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, was the place where lambs destined for the temple were born and raised. Every firstborn male from the area around Bethlehem was considered holy, set aside for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Generations of hereditary shepherds tended the sacred flocks. So these shepherds' role was to inspect the lambs that were to be used as sacrificial offerings. They were chosen to inspect and confirm that the baby lying in their manger was indeed without blemish. This was the purpose of Christ's first coming. Remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's declaration when he sees Jesus. See, the greatest present that has ever been given at Christmas time was God's Son given as the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world, born in the town of the sacrificial lambs, and that's why Bethlehem, inspected by the very shepherds who would approve the lambs to be offered in Jerusalem to atone for sin, laid in the manger, and wrapped in those priestly garments, those swaddling bands, to prevent any blemish. He is the Lamb of God, born on the Feast of Trumpets, to proclaim liberty to the captives, slain from the foundation of the world. We'll continue next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to review these things and just to pause and to think of what your word really does tell us. And Lord, we do know that you are indeed the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. You are the one who came to proclaim liberty to the captives. We thank you for these truths Lord, impress upon our heart, Lord, the importance of not following tradition, but following and trusting your word. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Stir our hearts, we pray, and give us a greater love for you, for your word, and for your people. We just thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.